You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode number 119 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, welcome to the podcast. Last week, as y'all will recall, we talked about the Confederate assaults on the enemy position that came to be known as the Hornet's Nest, where the divisions of Hurlbut and W.H.L. Wallace and the remnant of Prentice's command made their stand in the center of the embattled Union line. In many early histories of the Battle of Shiloh, the hornet's nest played a starring role, with the Union defensive stand there saving the day for Grant. But some of the more recent accounts of the battle have played down the importance of the Federal stand at the hornet's nest, and recently, some historians have argued against the long-held belief that the spot was the scene of the most important fighting during the battle. In reference to the Battle of Shiloh, The hornet's nest quickly became a household name, and one can understand why. I mean, it just sounds like the spot where the most ferocious fighting would take place, right? And if we're honest, the very name of the position no doubt helped the combat there assume mythical proportions. And then the later drama that will play out there, which we haven't got to yet, but as we'll see later on, while Sherman and McClernand and Hurlbut all eventually withdraw to Grant's final defensive line, Prentice and Wallace don't fall back, and they literally held the hornet's nest until their commands were surrounded and captured. So the way that disaster played out also gained more attention for the hornet's nest, making it seem as if the troops captured there were sacrificed, buying time for the rest of Grant's army to fall back to the final defensive line. But as we tried to point out last week, while the fighting was fierce during the repeated Confederate assaults on the hornet's nest, the reason the Union position there was never broken was mostly due to the fact that the rebels had thinned their forces in that sector in order to strengthen their attacks on other parts of the battlefield. As a result, relatively few Confederate troops were left in the center third of the battlefield, and therefore the hornet's nest position was never subjected to anything like the massive, overwhelming Confederate attack that had pushed back Sherman's and McClernand's divisions. At any rate, we just wanted you guys to be aware of the debate over the importance of the hornet's nest. And it's just our two cents worth But we think that placing the fighting there into the overall context of the battle shows that while the repeated Confederate assaults on the hornet's nest were dramatic, that sector of the battlefield was actually the least fought over area for most of the day, 
and it certainly wasn't the scene of the heaviest fighting at Shiloh. The Confederate attacks on the hornet's nest simply never had much weight behind them, and that was because, as we mentioned last week, the heavy blows were being struck elsewhere on the battlefield. About the time that Hindman's assault on the hornet's nest was ending in failure and Gibson was preparing to launch the first of his brigade's three or four assaults, the battle took a dramatic turn in another sector. As y'all already know, on the Union right, Sherman and McClernand's line around the crossroads had finally been overwhelmed, after most of the combat power of the Confederate Army had been massed against them by mid-morning. The two Union divisions, along with Beach's brigade, had fallen back about a half-mile to a large field owned by a farmer named Jones. In Jones's field, Sherman and McClernand set about reorganizing their formations as best they could, although the units were badly jumbled. Of the seven Federal brigades here, one, Hildebrand's, had virtually ceased to exist as a unit. Four more brigades had all taken very heavy losses and were disorganized and low on ammunition. Then Hare's brigade of McClernand's division had taken only moderately less damage, and so only McDowell's brigade, out on Sherman's far right flank, was fresh and virtually unbloodied. Although the Federals who had fallen back to Jones Field were in various states of disorder and low on ammunition, Sherman sensed that the rebels were also having problems. Already close to an hour had passed since the Confederates had finally cracked he and McClernand's line along the Corinth and Hamburg-Purdy roads. But although the artillery of both sides were still carrying on a lively exchange, the rebels hadn't made a serious attempt to follow up their success. This led Sherman to reassess he and McClernand's situation. Having been given some breathing space by the Confederates, Sherman had a couple of options open to him. The most obvious choice was to maintain a passive defense on this new line, sorting out the tangled units, letting the troops rest, and resupplying them with ammunition. In this way, Sherman's and McClernand's men could prepare themselves to repulse another all-out rebel assault in this sector. But Sherman rejected that course of action. Instead, after conferring with McClernand, Sherman decided to use their battered and jumbled commands to launch the first significant Union counteroffensive of the day. Sherman's decision to attempt to retake the initiative on this part of the battlefield was a daring move. Actually, going over to the offensive against an overwhelming Confederate force that had crushed their line just an hour before seemed bold to the point of recklessness, but there were sound tactical reasons for taking the chance. If, as Sherman suspected, the rebels were also disorganized, then hitting them with an unexpected attack might take them by surprise, knock them off balance, and keep them that way. At the very least, a counterattack, even if only moderately successful, would delay the next Confederate assault on the battered and shaky Union right. But, as Sherman must have known, a failed counterattack here by the 1st and 5th Divisions could have disastrous consequences, not just for the Union right, but possibly for the rest of Grant's army. 
If the Confederates quickly and easily repulsed the attack and in so doing crushed Sherman's and McClernand's divisions, then it would mean the complete collapse of Union resistance on this end of the battlefield. But Sherman evidently judged a counterattack worth the risk, perhaps thinking that in its boldness was its hope. Sherman's staff officers rode among the jumbled formations and ordered them to advance. McClernand, assisted by three of his staff, also rode among his men and ordered them forward. And so about noon or 1230, a ragged line of soldiers in blue began to move south from the area of Jones Field. There hadn't been time to bring up ammunition for all the troops, though, and so great was the disorganization among the units that perhaps a third of the formations in this sector may not have participated in the advance. Indeed, only 14 of 22 regiments can be documented as having taken part in the counterattack. On the right of the advance, McDowell's intact brigade formed the core of the counterattack, while in the center of the move, the most solid unit was Marsh's brigade, which had taken very heavy casualties but was a steady, reliable formation. Both brigades, McDowell's and Marsh's, served as rallying points for separated elements of other formations, units that had been scattered in the earlier combat and during the withdrawal to Jones Field, but that now wished to get back into the fight. As Sherman and McClernand urged their men forward, the Federal counterattack took the Confederates in this sector completely by surprise. Nevertheless, the fighting quickly swelled to a fever pitch, since the rebels may have been surprised, but they were unwilling to fall back. They had set out that morning to take ground, not to give it up, and they resisted the unexpected Federal advance stubbornly. Opposing McDowell's portion of the counterattack was a collection of Confederate regiments from four different brigades. The most cohesive of these was Colonel Robert Trebu's brigade, which still had four of its six regiments on the same part of the battlefield. Meanwhile, opposing Marsh's part of the assault were two rebel brigades, those of Colonel Preston Smith of Polk's Corps and Brigadier General Patton Anderson of Bragg's, each with four regiments, or the equivalent. Marsh was unable to make much headway on his front, and the resulting fight was a bloody standoff, and for more than an hour neither side was able to gain the upper hand in this sector. But just to the west, on McDowell's front, although the Federals here could only have had equal numbers, if not slightly less than the Confederates, the surprise factor worked in their favor, and the surging boys in blue drove the rebels back nearly a half mile. But then, under Corps Commander Hardee's direction, some Confederates gained a position on McDowell's exposed right flank, and the Federals were brought to a halt by this threat. The fighting here continued to rage hotly for some time, but then lack of ammunition became a serious problem for all of Sherman's and McClernand's regiments. As one Federal unit after another ran out of cartridges, they were forced to fall back once again, in reasonably good order, to Jones Field, where the attack had started. For their part, the Confederates breathed a sigh of relief, and, except for an ill-conceived cavalry charge, they contented themselves for the time being simply with renewing the exchange of artillery fire on this part of the battlefield. 
Although Sherman's and McClernand's men had to fall back to Jones Field once again, the Federal counterattack had thrown the Confederate left wing into confusion, keeping the rebels in this sector off balance during early afternoon, and it further disorganized the already jumbled Confederate formations so that Hardee needed even more time to untangle units before they would be ready to resume the offensive. It was on this portion of the battlefield, in front of Sherman's and McClernand's divisions, that the heaviest fighting at Shiloh took place, and where the dead and wounded lay thicker than anywhere else, even the legendary hornet's nest. In fact, by keeping large masses of rebels locked up on their front, the Federals of the battered 1st and 5th Divisions made possible the successful defense of the hornet's nest in the Union Center. As we've already stressed, in the center sector of the battlefield, the rebel line was extremely thinly manned, and so attacks there simply lacked the weight of numbers to carry the hornet's nest, since most of the Confederate strength had been drawn off to the west, where the massed rebel forces were locked in desperate combat with Sherman and McClernand. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. After his arrival on the battlefield, Ulysses S. Grant had continued to move from one part of the combat zone to another, checking in with his division commanders and directing the overall Union defense. Although the tide of battle throughout the morning had gone mostly against his troops, Grant remained confident, partially because he was Grant and partially because he knew he had reinforcements on their way from two different quarters. Grant knew that the lead division of Don Carlos Buell's Army of the Ohio, the division commanded by William Bull Nelson, was on its way to the Shiloh battlefield. Nelson's men had started the day and camped outside Savannah, eight miles below Pittsburgh Landing. Before leaving his headquarters at Savannah that morning, Grant had ordered Nelson to march his division down the east bank of the Tennessee River to a point opposite Pittsburgh Landing, where steamboats could quickly and easily ferry his troops over to join Grant's forces. Grant probably expected Nelson's division would be on hand as early as mid-afternoon, But as it turned out, Bull Nelson's march along the river took him through muddy bottomland, difficult terrain that was only made worse by the recent heavy rains. As a result, his division's march was slowed, and it would be nearly sunset before the head of his column reached the east bank of the Tennessee, across from the Pittsburgh Landing. That would be too late for Nelson's division to play any role in Sunday's fighting. 
but Grant knew he had other reinforcements approaching from another quarter. Lew Wallace's 3rd Division of Grant's own Army of the Tennessee had been encamped at Crump's Landing, not more than five miles above Pittsburgh Landing and on the same side of the river as the battlefield at Shiloh. You guys may recall how, as Grant had steamed up river on the Tigris toward the sound of the fighting that morning, he'd paused along the way long enough to confer with Lew Wallace and order Wallace to hold his division in readiness to march on receipt of further orders. And shortly after arriving at Pittsburgh Landing and realizing that his army was fighting for its very life, Grant had sent word back to Crump's Landing that Wallace was to immediately march his troops to the battlefield. And as the fighting raged at Shiloh throughout the morning, from remarks he made to Sherman and to others, Grant obviously fully expected to see Lew Wallace and his men by midday, and there was little doubt that Grant was counting on the fresh 3rd Division to provide the margin he needed to turn the tide of battle. To back up a bit, but early Sunday morning, Lew Wallace had been awakened before sunrise by a sentry who said he heard the sounds of battle coming from upriver. Wallace went out with the sentry and heard the sound of fighting, both musketry and the deeper boom of cannon coming from the direction of Pittsburgh Landing. As his staff joined him, Wallace, probably about 6 a.m., sent out orders for his division to concentrate at a crossroads called Stony Lonesome, a couple of miles inland from Crump's Landing. Wallace told his brigade commanders to hold their troops in readiness for immediate movement from that spot. Stony Lonesome was a particularly good spot for Lew Wallace to hold his division ready to move, since from there roads led directly to Pittsburgh Landing and also to the right wing of Sherman's division, which was located at the southwestern edge of the Union encampments near Shiloh Church, three miles from Pittsburgh Landing. The road to Pittsburgh Landing was the River Road, and the other was known as the Shunpike. Using one or the other, Wallace would be able to march the 3rd Division to either the landing or the church. Anticipating that Grant would steam past Crump's Landing on his way from Savannah to Pittsburgh Landing, Wallace himself remained at Crump's with his staff on a steamboat tied up to the dock. Sure enough, when the Tigress came into sight, it headed for Wallace's ship, and from the decks of the two steamboats, the two generals consulted with one another. It was probably about 8.30 by this time, and it was at this point that Grant ordered Wallace to hold his division in readiness to march upon receipt of further orders. As Wallace reported in his memoirs, he told Grant that he'd already had his division concentrate at Stony Lonesome. And with that, Grant and the Tigris then then continued upstream toward Pittsburgh Landing. With the advantage of hindsight, it's clear that Grant should have ordered Lew Wallace to march at once, especially after Wallace reported that he already had the 3rd Division assembled at Stony Lonesome. But despite the sounds of fighting coming from the south, Grant didn't have full knowledge of what was really underway around Shiloh Church at that time. And besides, Grant had actually been worried for some days about a Confederate attack on Crump's Landing, and that concern was probably still in the back of his mind. And so Grant would only order Wallace to march away from Crump's after he arrived at Pittsburgh Landing and confirmed that the fighting going on there was not a feint, but was a major rebel assault. 
It had probably been about 9 or 9.30 that Grant arrived at Pittsburgh Landing and very shortly thereafter realized that was where Wallace's division needed to be. So Grant directed Colonel John A. Rollins, his most trusted staff officer, to ride back to the Tigris and send Captain A.S. Baxter back down the river to Crump's and order Wallace to come on at once. Baxter told Rollins he wanted the order in writing, so Rollins dictated it quickly while Baxter wrote it down on a piece of scrap paper. Then Rollins hurried off to rejoin Grant while Baxter on the Tigris headed back downriver. The Tigris, racing along with the current, must have reached Crumbs well before 10.30, but at the landing, Baxter found not a living soul, although there was a horse tethered nearby. Rather unhelpfully, however, the horse couldn't tell Baxter where Lou Wallace had disappeared to, and so for the next hour, the bewildered Baxter apparently wandered around the vicinity of the deserted landing until shortly before 11.30, Lieutenant John W. Ross of Wallace's staff rode up. What had happened is that, after conferring with Grant, Lou Wallace went to Stony Lonesome to be with his division. He left a saddled horse at Crump's for the use of the staff officer he assumed Grant would send with further orders. The horse was a nice touch, and obviously Wallace assumed that Grant, knowing that the 3rd Division was concentrated at Stony Lonesome, would order the staff officer to deliver the orders there. But Baxter seems to have had no idea where the 3rd Division was, and so an hour was lost. Here the fault is clearly Wallace's, since even if he did inform Grant that the division was concentrated at Stony Lonesome in readiness to march, he still ought to have left a staff officer at Crump's to direct Grant's messenger to the crossroads. Wallace, listening to the steadily increasing sounds of battle from the south, had grown increasingly impatient while waiting at Stony Lonesome. Finally, shortly after 11 o'clock, Wallace sent Lieutenant Ross to ride back to Crump's and see what he could find out there. Around 11.30, Ross returned at a gallop with Baxter. The content of the order Baxter handed to Wallace at 11.30 became the focal point of much controversy after the battle. Wallace claimed it ordered him to march south and come up on Sherman's right, while Rollins remembered the order quite a bit differently. In his version, the paper told Wallace to march south on the river road and come up behind the Army's right and await further orders. No one could later refer to the actual written order since Wallace handed it to a staff officer who promptly lost it that same day. At any rate, rather than march south on the river road, Wallace chose to use the shunpike instead. Wallace knew that by using the shunpike, his men would move directly to a position on the right flank of the Union line, which he seemed to assume was Grant's intended purpose for the 3rd Division. The question, and one that will likely never be answered, is whether the order read as Wallace claimed or whether it read as Rollins maintained. If it read as Rollins maintained, then Wallace must have decided to disobey the letter of the order in order to fulfill what he took to be its spirit. That is, he chose not to use the river road because he knew the shunpike would take his men directly to the right flank of the Union line. While Lou Wallace's choice of the shunpike is controversial and depends primarily on the wording of the lost written order, the fault for the next delay lies squarely and unquestionably with Wallace. 
That's because, having received Grant's order at 11.30, Wallace, by his own account, gave his troops a half hour, as he put it, quote, for dinner. Now, of course, Lee Wallace didn't know how badly the battle to the south was going, but he did know there was a battle raging, and so Wallace might have been expected to dispense with such niceties as a lunch break for his troops, most of whom had already been lounging about idly for several hours. Meanwhile, Grant was growing impatient. Partially, this impatience was simply the result of his desperate need for reinforcements. It was probably around 11 a.m. that Grant dispatched a young lieutenant of the 2nd Illinois Cavalry to ride to Lew Wallace and urge him to come on as rapidly as possible. The lieutenant used the river road, and he probably made the eight-and-a-half to nine-mile ride over rough and muddy ground in about an hour and ten minutes. That would have put him at Stony Lonesome about ten minutes after twelve. But, as with the lost order... There is controversy surrounding just when the messenger found Wallace and what was said at the encounter. Wallace claimed that his men had already started their march down the Shunpike when the lieutenant arrived with oral orders from Grant to, quote, unquote, hurry up. Wallace asked if the man had written orders, and since there were none, and since, according to Wallace, the 3rd Division was already marching down the Shunpike toward the fighting, he thought no more of it. The unnamed lieutenant, for his part, when he got back to Grant, reported that the 3rd Division was standing idle and that Wallace had refused to march without written orders. It seems likely that the lieutenant simply misunderstood Wallace's quite proper inquiry as to whether he carried a written order. As for the lieutenant's report that the 3rd Division was standing idle, that makes no sense unless he arrived at the tail end of the division's lunch break. When the cavalry lieutenant returned to Grant with the report that Lew Wallace had refused to move without written orders, Grant, who by that point must have felt his patience sorely tried, turned to Captain William R. Rowley of his staff and directed him to ride to Wallace and get him moving, providing written orders in Grant's name if necessary. Wallace reported Rowley's arrival as shortly after two o'clock. When the captain explained that he had been sent to hurry Wallace along, the general replied that this was the second such message and that he didn't understand why. Wallace also bristled at the suggestion that he had demanded written orders before moving, pointing out his willingness to march by the fact that his troops were moving along the road. Rowley somewhat dryly observed that the 3rd Division was indeed on the road, but not the right road. He said Grant expected Wallace to be taking the river road, and he asked Wallace just where he thought he was going on this road. To join Sherman, the general replied. When Rowley explained that Sherman no longer held the position at the south end of the Shunpike, Wallace was stunned. After Rowley explained that the whole of the Union Army was being driven back toward the river, and there was some question as to whether or not they would be driven into it, a thunderstruck Wallace asked what Grant wanted him to do. Rowley said that the commanding general wanted the 3rd Division at Pittsburgh Landing as soon as possible. And with that, for the first time, after several hours and three couriers, Lew Wallace seems to have finally had a clear picture of what Grant expected of him. But to comply with Grant's wishes, Wallace would now have to backtrack. 
After moving down the Shunpike for some distance, he would now need to march back toward Stony Lonesome and cross the river road, then proceed to Pittsburgh Landing. Wallace had available to him two different methods of doing that. He could simply face the entire column about and backtrack toward Stony Lonesome, or he could countermarch, that is, have the unit in the lead double the length of the column, followed in turn by each of the other units of the division in succession, so that the column would remain in the same sequence as before. And Wallace chose to countermarch, even though it added an extra half hour or so's delay. But Wallace made the choice because he wanted to keep his favorite fighting units at the front of the column. Meanwhile, several of Wallace's staff officers had found out from a local that it wouldn't be necessary for the division to backtrack all the way to Stony Lonesome. Some miles back, there was a crossroad that would allow the column to cut across and reach the river road. But it didn't turn out to be much of a shortcut, since the side road was little more than a rough trail through the woods, and Wallace himself admitted that progress along it was, quote, toilsome and intolerably slow. As the 3rd Division was toiling along the crossroad, heading over to the river road, Major Rollins and Lieutenant Colonel James B. McPherson overtook Wallace from the rear. Grant had dispatched them around 3 p.m., and over the next hour and a half, they had ridden all the way up the river road, over to Stony Lonesome, down the Shunpike, and then over the crossroad. It's no wonder that Wallace later described Rollins upon his arrival as, quote, terribly excited. And Rollins' irritation and frustration no doubt wasn't improved by the fact that when he and McPherson came up, Wallace had called a halt to rest his men and allow the column to close up, and Wallace himself was seated placidly on a log by the side of the crossroad. To men who had just come from the chaos of battle and who knew that Grant's army was fighting for its life, the scene was no doubt unbearable. Rollins did all that he could to urge Wallace to move with greater speed, putting forth various ideas as to how the march to Pittsburgh Landing could be accelerated, but Wallace stubbornly resisted each suggestion that was put before him. Finally, Rollins suggested to McPherson, in Wallace's hearing, that they ought to arrest him. As Wallace later recalled, McPherson, quote, did not encourage the idea, end quote, although McPherson did propose an idea about how to rearrange the artillery within the column in order to speed up the division's advance, and Wallace did accept that recommendation. Finally, the head of the column reached the river road. As the division emerged from the side road and advanced south on the river road, progress was better, for a time, but then the road led downhill into the broad, swampy bottomlands of Snake Creek. Mud sucked at the men's shoes and threatened to bog down the artillery, and at one point there was a stretch where the road disappeared completely beneath a sheet of water, but the column splashed through and struggled onward. When some civilians reported that the rebels held the bridge over Snake Creek, Wallace halted the column and sent some cavalry forward to reconnoiter. McPherson and Rowley accompanied the horsemen, while Rollins waited with Wallace. Soon the men came back with word that the bridge was open. Yet Wallace kept the column halted, wanting to ensure that everyone was closed up and that the 3rd Division would enter the battle as a unit, not piecemeal. Meanwhile, from the south, the thunder of artillery rose to a noticeable new crescendo, louder, deeper, and closer than it had been before. 
Rollins and McPherson realized they were hearing the Army's big siege guns, which Grant had ordered positioned as part of a final line of defense on that last ridge south of Pittsburgh Landing. If the heavy guns were in action now, it meant that Grant was making his final stand. Rollins later recalled that the sound, quote, filled our minds with terrible apprehension, end quote. Grant's two most trusted staff officers looked at each other grimly, but there was little more they could do to accelerate Wallace's march. Eventually, with darkness gathering, the 3rd Division moved on. Night had fallen by the time the lead unit, the 24th Indiana, approached the battlefield. Out of the darkness ahead came a challenge. Who comes there? Hoosiers, replied the 24th Colonel. Welcome, Hoosiers, answered the voice in the darkness which belonged to a soldier in the 66th Illinois, set out to picket the northern edge of Grant's army. And with that, the quixotic march of Lee Wallace's 3rd Division was finally complete, after covering a distance of at least 16 miles in 7 or 8 hours, despite the fact that it had been camped that morning barely 5 miles away. The march's repercussions lasted for the rest of the war, Lew Wallace never regained Grant's confidence, and Grant's low opinion of his abilities crippled his hitherto promising career. Wallace spent most of the rest of the Civil War without an active command, and when he did serve, it was in backwaters. His one shot at redemption came at the Battle of Monocacy in 1864, when he fought a crucial delaying action against the Confederate forces of Jubal Early and helped save Washington. Next time, we'll get back to the action on the battlefield, but we wanted to spend quite a bit of time in this episode covering Lew Wallace's march because it's one of the more enduring and bitter controversies of the battle. To us, though, quite aside from whatever actually happened with regard to Wallace's understanding of the original, subsequently lost order, The way he then conducted his approach march at Shiloh was totally inappropriate for a division that ought to have been rushing to the aid of its hard-pressed and dying comrades a few miles to the south. And that Lew Wallace's conduct left much to be desired was painfully clear to officers like Rowley, McPherson, and Rollins who had just come from the battle. They knew, and Grant expected, that the 3rd Division ought to have been pressing on with the same desperation with which Grant's other forces were fighting. The 3rd Division's late arrival at Shiloh poisoned the relationship between Grant and Lew Wallace, derailing the career of a young general who had, up until that time, seemed to be a rapidly rising star in the Army of the Tennessee. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is The Shiloh Campaign, edited by Stephen E. Woodworth. And yes, we know that we've already recommended Woodworth's book, Shiloh, Confederate High Tide in the Heartland, but this is a different book, and it contains some essays, eight in all, on different aspects of the battle, written by different historians and edited by Woodworth. And each essay is thought-provoking and an excellent study of the particular topic it addresses. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. 
And then as we wrap up the show, we just wanted to give a quick but heartfelt thank you to Emily for her special donation and to Jane, who is the newest member of the Strawfoot Brigade. Thanks, ladies. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time when we continue with the story of the Battle of Shiloh. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.